Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Sorry for a slight delay here today. I am, uh, I've been not very well today. I've <clears throat> caught something lovely that my children brought home from school as usual. And, uh, uh, I've been kind of under the weather and I'm hoping that my voice will hold out, uh, throughout. So I have my, I have my, my cup of hot tea. I'm usually drinking something iced. Uh, but tonight I have my hot tea and I'm, uh, uh, hoping, as I said, I'm hoping that my voice will uh, um, will hold out. So we'll we'll see. Um, <laughs> anyway, however, tonight we are we are coming down uh, uh, into uh, the second half of our class here. We're all, we're halfway done already uh, with the shaping of Middle Earth, which has been uh, really a lot of fun. And tonight we really dig into the uh, um, the. Uh, sort of more obscure bits. The sketch and the quinta are kind of the mainstream bit uh, of this book. Uh, and the second half uh, is where things kind of get a little interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff with you tonight. Um, one thing I did want to point out, um, we have eight classes scheduled uh, to talk about this book. So tonight, class five, we're talking about uh, well, we're talking about basically the appendices to the quinta chapter, uh, the first Silmarillion map chapter, and the Embarcanta chapter, which is really fascinating. Then uh, we have, we're going to do one class each on the two different uh, chapters on the first annals uh, that, we, that we get. So that's going to be class number six and class number seven. Um, the class number eight has been reserved for any spillover from anything that I might not finish, though you have to admit, I'm, I'm being unusually good. Uh, uh, at least yesterday, last time was an unusually strong effort. Um, and, um, and anyway, so, uh, it's room for that, but also ideally, and I hope this time it shall in fact be, uh, time for, for Q&A. So if you've got questions, think, you know, things that come up as you're, you know, as we're going through this stuff, um, stuff I don't get to in class, or bits I kind of skipped over and didn't didn't really stop and sit down with and pay attention to uh, when we went by. Um, needless to say, of course, in what I am allocating class time to doesn't necessarily mean that like I'm talking about everything that's interesting to talk about. Um, you might have other questions or other interests or things that you're really focused on. I'd love to hear about that. If you'd like to hear me talk more about some things that I that I as I, as I said that I went past or um, if there are other, you know, questions and things you would like to discuss and, ha and hear me talk about, uh, please do go ahead. You can send those to me by email. Um, Olson at Mythgard.org will get to me. Uh, and uh, you can so you can send those questions and I'll start collecting those questions and hopefully bring together a whole bunch of those for the, uh, the last day of class, which I think we're going to be able to focus largely, if not entirely, uh, on your questions. So... Um, so please do go ahead and start uh, um, uh, start sending me those, and uh, also keep in mind that the uh, next book that we're going to be reading, the next thing up on the agenda after uh, uh, after the shaping of Middle Earth is done, is uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So uh, you can start making plans for that and uh, uh, sort of spreading the word about that. We'll have uh, links and web page and stuff for that up before too long in the next week or two. Um, so, uh, you can start looking for that, but just keep in mind that that's what's on the, uh, that's what's on the horizon. I'm really, uh, I'm really pumped to talk about Dracula with you guys. I used to teach Dracula every year, one of my favorite books, and, um, I used to assign it in my English 101 class when I was teaching intro to composition, basically. Uh, with Dracula was one of the, 
one of the books we do all the time. Uh, love it. Love it. Um, no, Nancy, it's not. Uh, it, there's not a specific text that we need for Dracula. It's pretty widely available. Um, I'm myself probably going to be using a, a pretty cheap little paperback version. So, uh, so no, the, it's uh, it should be fine. Any 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 copy that you have should probably work. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. Arthur says his grandfather's family was from Transylvania. Interesting. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, Yana, you're right. It is, of course, free. It's it's uh, it's in the public domain, so you can get an ebook uh, for free uh, of Dracula. It's uh, uh, one of the advantages of reading old books, um, especially those books in the sweet spot, right? If you read like medieval books, then you're generally reading a modern edition of something from manuscript, and so the modern edition is probably not in uh, uh, in, in the public domain. Um, so although they're very old books, the texts are not actually available for free. Um, but all of those, uh, you know, the uh, printed books from the last few centuries are kind of in the uh, public domain sweet spot. So, um, you know, Nancy, I think it may well be the first public domain Mythgard Academy book we've ever done. Come to think of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway... Um, and some people were asking, are we going to do some of the Dracula movies? You know, I'm not going to be able to resist that. So yeah, yeah, I think we're going to do two or three Dracula movies actually at the end, uh, cause I find them really interesting from an adaptation standpoint. Um, so, um, uh, yep, yep, yep. We're definitely, we're definitely going to, uh, going to be doing that. But anyway, more, more on that later, more on that later. Okay, let's talk about uh, uh, the uh, shaping of Middle Earth. So, uh, first, um, we're going to do uh, the appendices, as I said. Um, now, the appendix number one of the Quinta uh, is one of those things that you come across in the history of Middle Earth, which. Uh, people almost compulsively skip, and that is large blocks of text in Anglo-Saxon. And, uh, uh, you know, that's... um, It's it's challenging. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that it's not challenging, and and you need no excuses for skipping it. Um, I mean, a few general things that I would point to here... Notice the sort of the confluence in Tolkien's mind, right? That I mean, it's one thing that I've tried to emphasize about Tolkien for a long time. You know, I think about um, I think about the well, it never rose to uh, uh, to the to the level of scandal, but the kind of disapproval, at least, of many of his uh, colleagues and um, uh, well, colleagues essentially. At, uh, at Oxford when he published The Lord of the Rings. There was a little bit of eyebrow-raising uh, with The Hobbit, but much more so with The Lord of the Rings, mostly because it was such an enormous work. And so, you know, you could... You might be able to tell yourself that The Hobbit was something that, uh, you know, a talented Don kind of tossed off during breaks, you know, during the, during the long vacation, and... Uh, uh, you know, and it didn't really interfere with his scholarly work. But then you, you see the mammoth Lord of the Rings, and, you know, they looked at that, and they were like, there is no way that, I mean, you know, basically what they kept saying was, you know, well, we've been waiting for, you know, Tolkien, who is a, a very highly esteemed scholar, philologist, waiting for him to produce, like, the definitive book, right? 
Um, you know, they're waiting for the great piece of scholarship to come from Tolkien, and instead he produces the Lord of the Rings. And so they're like, oh, well, now we see why we didn't get the great piece of scholarship, right? So that sense of the uh, sort of the competition between his scholarly work and his creative work um, is, you know, something uh, that, you know, sort of a very long standing. It was a kind of an inescapable concept from the beginning. Um, but I, the more I read Tolkien, the more convinced I become that that is from the, I mean, it's, although it's kind of understandable from the point of view of the outside world, from the internal perspective, from Tolkien's point of view, there, there was really a continuity. It was, there was not a disjunction. He was not like, now I'm going to take time off from thinking about that scholarly stuff. I'm going to put that aside. All right, I'm going to put work aside and I'm going to play instead. Um, this was all using the same part of his brain, right? You know, this was all, um, uh, this was all very intimately connected. And again, so you, you need sort of like little other evidence than the fact that he decides to, you know, not only conceptually does he link the Lost Tales and tie that in with the uh, the Anglo-Saxon period and even Anglo-Saxon names and languages and things, but, but that he's actually going to do, right? He's not content with merely the concept of saying these, these stories are brought back from Tol Erisea by a human mariner, right, by uh, Ariel or Alfwina, whatever his name's going to end up being, uh, or both, right, in some, in some cases, as you saw. And, uh, uh, and so he brings them back to England, and that's how these stories sort of enter circulation and, and form the, the background of a, of a really English elf mythology, right, fairy mythology. Um, not content merely with that concept, he actually starts to implement it, right? Okay, I'm going to translate the Quenta into Anglo-Saxon, so I'm going to produce Alfwina's text, right? Here's Alfwina's translation of, uh, of, uh, of, of the stories that he heard, in to- or at least of a summary of the stories that he heard in Tolerasea. Um, so he actually does it. Um, I'm, we're not going to look in detail at his Anglo-Saxon translation. I mean, of course, there's a lot that's interesting there, but it requires a little bit too much, you know, familiarity with Anglo-Saxon, and I'm not going to assume you've all studied Anglo-Saxon. But I do at least want to look at the name list. Now, on the one hand, that might seem like the less exciting part of it, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's ignore the uh, the Anglo-Saxon prose. Instead, let's look at the list of Anglo-Saxon names, like it, right? But... I actually think that this is a this is a really fascinating um, this is a really fascinating moment um, because it allows us to look at um, um, it allows us to look at how Tolkien was thinking about these characters to sort of to look at that from a different angle, right? Um, I mean, we're used to the we're used to the Elvish names, right? Manwe, Olmo, Aule, Tolkas, Mandos, Orome, all those names, right? We're used to all those names, and we associate them with different things. Maybe maybe you remember some of the alternative names that are given, which point to some of the attributes of these of those Valar, uh, you know, more particularly. Um, you know, so again, the alternative names are one big thing, but looking at the um, um, Looking at the uh, at the way he renders these into Anglo-Saxon gives us, I think, a really interesting insight into the some of the things that Tolkien really primarily associated, and sometimes I think can kind of serve as a, as a bit of a corrective for us. Um, for, what I mean by that is, of course, everyone notices the first time they read the Silmarillion. Everybody notices that Tolkien's uh, uh, you know mythos, his his uh, 
pantheon, right, the Valar, are a lot like other pantheons, right? That they, you know, so the, the the temptation to draw parallels with like the Greek gods or the Norse gods is very very strong, right? Um, and that's totally natural, and uh, there's no absolute reason to resist that. But I think to some extent, uh, it invites us that parallel invites us to kind of carry things over to um, uh, uh, to Tolkien's Valar that aren't necessarily things that are actually central to Tolkien's own conception of those characters and who they are. Um, so I like um, I like uh, 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 the Anglo-Saxon translations because they show us at least like, you know, when he had to choose, right? So he's, the, the, the overall trend, right, is he's, he's translating it into essentially simple word phrases. He's not using, in essence, a proper noun, right? Or at least the proper nouns that he is ascribing to the gods um, are, is, are generally simply translatable as a common phrase. Um, and so therefore, he, he, by making that choice, he is choosing to isolate a particular element, a particular thing that these uh, that these different Vala are associated with. And it's not always the one that we might necessarily think of first, right? Um, and so seeing what that choice is, I think is, I think is pretty cool. Um, so let's see, I, uh, I made a chart. Let's see, I tried putting the, we tried putting the chart in here. Can you see this well enough? Tell me if you need this to be bigger. I can make it bigger if we need the text here to be bigger. Um, but, um, but let's see if we can, if we can go on with this. Um, okay. So first, Manwe, right? Manwe is called Wolkenfreya, right? Uh, he is, uh, he is the, uh, the, 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 the Lord of the sky, right? Wolken equals so. Wolken equals sky. Freya equals ruler. Freya is what all of the the uh, the, the Valar are called. So he's the lord of the sky. Okay, so that one that one's pretty simple, right? Lord of the sky. Ulmo, Garsegis Freya, Eelwater Freya. I love Eelwater Freya. Um, he is the sea lord, right? The ocean lord, Garseg. And of course, you will have noticed that Garseg, that word, that Anglo-Saxon word for sea, is used numerous times on the maps, right? Utgarsej and Ingarsej, right? The outer sea and the inner sea. Um, so, ocean, right? Ocean. Uh, 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 so, he's the lord of oceans, but he's also Elwaterfreya, right? The lord of all waters. Uh, an, an important element, right? Um, uh, you know, again, it's nice. he's not just the... And this is, again, a very big difference with somebody like Poseidon, right? If you just imagine Olmo, you know, sort of in a, you know, chariot pulled by some kind of aquatic being, right, out in the oceans with a trident and foam, and, you know, you know if you kind of think of him as a sea god explicitly in that way, you're missing the essence of Olmo, right? He is more than just a sea god. He is the Freya, right? The all-water lord, the lord of all waters. Now, Aule... Uh, Aule is the is is named Kraftfreya, right? That is, he's not uh, interestingly he's not Eorthfreya, right? He's not the he's not the Lord of Earth, right? He's not the Lord of Mountains. He's not the Lord of Stone. He is the Lord of Crafts, right? So craftsmanship, smithcraft, is the the number one thing. So again, having to choose one thing 
about Aule, right? To identify him by in Anglo-Saxon, uh, Tolkien chose craft, which I think, it's not that's shocking, of course, but it's interesting, right? So notice how he does not, therefore, correspond. We've had Wolken Freya, Garcedges Freya, right? We don't have what would seem to correspond to that in the third of those big three, right? We don't have, uh, you know, Earth Lord or, or anything like that. Um, so I think that that's really interesting, right? Um, that with Aule, he would kind of depart from that pattern because, and, you know, with the with that sort of triad there at the beginning, it seems to me the more conspicuous that he would, that he would deviate from that uh, in order to emphasize uh, craft. Okay, Tolkas. Tolkas is Avorthfreya. Avorthfreya. Uh, might or strength, right? The Lord of Might. The Lord of Strength. And again, that's not uh, uh, not shocking, but cool, right? Orame. Wathfreya and Huntenefreya, which mean almost the same thing, but importantly different. Lord, right? The Hunting Lord, Wathfreya. The Lord of the Hunt. And Huntenefreya which sounds like it's the same, but it's not, right? Lord of the Hunt and Lord of Hunters. So it's the difference between the Hunting Lord and Lord of the People Who Hunt. And that itself, Hontena Freya, is interesting, therefore, in that way, because this is the uh, the first time we have seen any of the any of those Valar associated, um, any of the Valar associated with, like, people, right, who follow them. Not necessarily their worshippers, but people who, you know, sort of pursue the same line that they do, right? Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, so that one I thought was cool. Mandos. What do you consider the sort of the, the core element of Mandos, right? Well, I know if you're like me, when you hear the name Mandos, the first thing you think of are is the role that he plays in several of the stories, right? And you're probably thinking of the Doom of Mandos. And uh, Mandos, the doomsman of the Valar, I think of him as the doomsman, uh, if only because um, uh, because I love that word. Uh, and I think that doomsman of the Valar is just about the coolest job title anyone has ever had. Um, but that's not what the Anglo-Saxon name associates him with, right? Not judgment, not doom, not prophecy, nothing like that. Um, he is he is Nefreya, uh, the uh, Neoama Hlafford, right? He is the corpse lord, the god of the dead, right? That the lord of the dead. That is it's So it's his association with death that he is primarily uh, that is primarily emphasized. Uh, and of course, that's been his job. That's always been his job, right? He's always been the lord of the dead, the keeper of the halls of the dead. Um, that's uh, that's it's, again. It's not like that's shocking, but it's interesting that um, that. That's the thing that gets uh, that gets focused on in his Anglo-Saxon name, Lorien. Also interesting. Another one I wouldn't have guessed, right? Uh, and uh, this is Swaven Freya. Swaven, of course, is a dream. I, well, sorry, I say of course. Um, that's a word that actually survived until it didn't quite survive all the way into modern times. But into pre-modern times, they were still using the word Swaven uh, in uh, in Shakespeare's time to talk about dreams at times. Um, and, um, well, it, it became a subset of dreams, sort of a, 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 a particular kind of dream. But anyway, don't worry about it. Um, but see, he's the lord of dreams. Um, not rest, not healing, not peace, 
dreams specifically, dreams and visions. Um, so uh, again, another, another you know, it's not a thing that's not associated with him, but um, but fascinating that that's the element that Tolkien would emphasize. Melko. So Melko gets three, right? Manfreya, Bolgen, Malskor. Now, this, of these three names, what do you notice about the sound of these names? Manfreya, Bolgen, and Malskor. Yeah, Nancy, I also can't help but notice that Bolgen sounds a lot like Bauglier which, remember, has been his name from the beginning. In fact, if uh, you recall, back at the beginning, Bauglier is used... In fact, isn't it, um, isn't it in... How, uh, isn't it the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin that Bauglier is used as his primary name? Or... No, no, no. It's uh, the beginning of the lay of Lathian. Right, it's the beginning of the lay of Lathian. Um, anyway, it's a name, not just an occasional name. It's an important name of, uh, of Morgoths. And yeah, so Bolgen sounds like Bauglier. Just... As I would say, Malskor sounds a lot like uh, sounds a lot like uh, uh, you know you've got um, uh, milk like Morgoth is not exactly the same, but it, it, uh, notice that it's it's the same kind of form, right? Um, a lot of the same uh, uh, the same kind of uh, uh, the same kind of, uh, of of sounds. Manfreya is a name which is modeled after the other kind, right? Just like Wolkenfreya and Kraftfreya and Avothfreya, um, we have Manfreya, the Lord of Evil, the Lord of Wickedness, right? Lord of Evil, that's pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward name for Melko right there. That one's not hard to call, um, not very complicated. Bolgen, meaning wrathful, right? The wrathful, so, you know, an adjective being used as a name here. And then Malskor, which Christopher Tolkien points out doesn't actually exist in Anglo-Saxon, um, but uh, it seems to be, uh, you know, so th- there's no instance of the use of that word, but there is a word uh, that is recorded, Malskrung, which means bewildering, so uh, it seems to be Tolkien is kind of b- is sort of retrofitting a name form which would essentially mean something like the bewilderer, right? The bewildering one. Um and that's pretty cool. So looking at those three elements, therefore, that he points to... Uh, so two things, then, that I would point out about Melkor's name and his uh, his little name... His line in the name chart here. First, um, the three different things that he's associated with, right? Evil, wrath, and bewilderment, right? So he is the one who is... him. He is evil, he is himself very angry, and he uh, is associated with enchantment and bewilderment. Um, and that was an, a, a really crucial element. That's something... That third seems like the one thing which might be kind of the element that maybe you wouldn't have expected, right? Wrath, evil, sure, yeah, that's, those are pretty predictable. Um, but, um, but bewildering enchantment might, might not have made your top three, right? If you had to choose three things to describe, like, the essence of who Melkor is and what he does... But it was a really important part of the concept from the beginning. Um, uh, Book of Lost Tales uh, uh, veterans will remember this spell of nameless dread that lay upon the hearts of the uh, of the Noldor who are captured and held in Angband, um, and that's 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 who he was, right? Um, he uh, 
he cast a spell of bewilderment on people. Um, and that hold that he can retain over the hearts of people um, through, you know, the, 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 the fear and the horror and the bewilderment of his will upon you has always been a really important element of his character. Remember that spell of nameless dread stuff. Bottomless dread. I'm sorry, Nancy, you're absolutely right. Bottomless dread. The spell of bottomless dread. That is so much cooler than nameless dread. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the spell of bottomless dread. Um, uh, that was from the the the, the Lost Tale, the, the, the Fall of Gondolin, which, as we were talking about before, is one of the very earliest uh, things. So again, this is him as the, you know, sort of uh, the source of the spell of bottomless dread is... Um, uh, is is the one of the first things, one of the first pictures that we get of Melko, even before we get the other stuff. Um, so uh, so yeah. Anyway, that's so so we see. Uh, so so again, uh, so that was one thing. Is the, those three different elements? The second thing that we see about the Melkor line in uh, in this chart is this is the first example that we get among the Anglo-Saxon names of. A name which is adapted, at least the first one I've given you, uh, the first one of where the where the name is adapted into Anglo-Saxon, not simply for the translation, but for the sound. Right, um, that similarity between Bolgen and Bauglier, I think, is really important. Right, it shows that Tolkien has a keen sensitivity to how a word sounds, and he, uh, you know, he. Uh, yeah, I mean his 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 sense. So when he's choosing these names, one of the things that he's choosing by is not just the, what the word means in Anglo-Saxon, but how it sounds in Anglo-Saxon. In other words, that consonantal combination, that B G L combination, seems to be in Tolkien's ear one of just like connected with. Wickedness with evil. You know, we get it again in Bolg, right? Son of Azog. Um, that um, you know, it's not that those um, those consonants can't ever be used for good as well as for evil, but but clearly in Tolkien's ear, there's something about that consonantal combination that says, you know, anger, wickedness, sinister, right? Um, and so it's really interesting to see him. Retain that we can see him. Some of the examples I have picked out uh, in the the latter part of my chart here um, are some of these that I think are really fascinating. Where we can see him trying to preserve some of the essential sound of the names that he's invented in his own Elvish languages, which are not based on Anglo-Saxon. Right? One of them is is based phonetically on Welsh. The other one based phonetically uh, on Finnish. Neither one of them having ought ha- having ought to do with Anglo-Saxon. Right? Uh, totally different language groups, and yet. He is. Uh, uh, he wants to retain some of that fundamental sound, and so he searches for an Anglo-Saxon word which will work both in content and in sound uh, for the original. And I, I loved. I love to see uh, the care with which uh, uh, with which he he does this. Um, so look at some other examples here. Um, uh, Balrog, of course. Well. Nah, I'm skipping down. It's okay. I'll skip down to Balrog for a second. In Balrog, we can see him doing the same thing. Right here with the Balrog, he doesn't make any attempt to do a Manfreya-ish one, right? One where he just simply does a sort of a translation, like, you know, so Melko is Manfreya, Lord of Evil, right? He doesn't do any equivalent with the Balrog, right? 
Instead, with both times, we get we get Bealu Weyarg and Bealu Broga. Um, both times, notice what we're getting: the B L G, right? Balrog again, right? Like Bauglir and Bolgan. Um, we're getting that. So the B L G, same kind of pattern, right? Um, Bealu Weyarg and Bealu Broga. And, but you'll notice that the meanings work too. Bealu means evil from the uh, Baal, uh, B-A-L-E is the modern English word um, that comes from that. Wearg, which of course is where the word warg comes from. It means an outlaw or a wolf. Um, something savage and outside the boundaries of, you know, good, right, and civilization. Um, broga means terror. So, uh, you know, we get these... Uh, the name works, right? Uh, you know, we have like the uh, the evil the evil wolf, the evil outlaw, the evil savage thing, and we have the evil terror, right? Both of those are perfectly fine, you know, combinations to uh, indicate what a Balrog is. But we also have something which doesn't just mimic exactly, but it echoes the original name. It retains some of the same phonoesthetic sense of of the elvish words and that's really cool it's really fascinating to watch tolkien do that um anyway going back to the ones i skipped and caligon interesting that in caligon the black gets a gets an entry here and and not uh, uh glorund but in caligon does and he is the andraga the andraka sorry the andraka anda which means hatred and draka which means dragon he's the hatred dragon the hating dragon the dragon of hatred right um that's really interesting. So notice how this one does actually seem to invoke... And Caligon is fascinating because on the one hand, he's like pretty much, you know, the greatest... He's not the prototype dragon, right? But he's uh, the greatest of the winged dragons. Kind of sounds like he's probably a good candidate for greatest dragon ever. Most powerful dragon ever. Um, but uh, he only comes in at one moment in one story, right? Just at the very end of the War of Wrath, uh, you know, he's the leader of the Winged Dragons and gets thrown down by Arendel end of his brief but sensational story, right? And so his brief but sensational story seems to be invoked in his name, right? He's the Hatred Dragon. Uh, the dragon released in the final, you know, sort of hatred and fear of, uh, of Morgoth's final, uh, final defense. You know, that the War of Wrath, right? Um, Angband love this one. This is another wonderful uh, name sound thing. On the one hand, it's called Irenhel, right? Iron Hell, uh, the Hells of Iron, which it's been called in English in the story from, you know, back in the in the Book of Lost Tales, it's called the Hells of Iron. That's a name that still is retained in the published Silmarillion um, as a sort of nickname for Angband, right? Uh, uh, but we see, of course, both of those words, Irin and Hell, are Anglo-Saxon words, and so he just, he includes it, right? Iron hell, iron hell. So notice that word, iron hell, that name, is not based on one of the names of Angband. It's the source of it, right? It was called the Hells of Iron. Why? Well, because it's called iron hell in Anglo-Saxon, obviously, right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. But Engbend, right? Brilliant. Engbend. It's almost the same word, right? Engbend. Uh, but it's narrow, straight, oppressive, bond, or fetter. So this image of uh, being uh, being straightly bound in in fetters, right? Being uh, you know of of prison and captivity. Um, 
that's really cool to have that be the essence of the name of Angband uh, and the way that that works is sort of a double sense right of course it's the prison in which um in which he incarcerates his opponents, right? And we see people uh, uh, getting uh, getting imprisoned there in Angband all the time. It's famous for its prisons. But, of course, it's also a narrow, straight place for Morgoth himself, right? I mean, he is... Uh, he, he doesn't ever come out, right? Except to fight Fingolfin, right? Uh, so it, it, I, I love the way that it's, it is a narrow place, right? He retreats to a narrow place. And is bound there, is fettered there, until he's finally dragged out. Um, Doriath. Um, I love, again, here with Doriath and Gondolin, I really like to see the, the sort of the stories that you can see, and they have, both of them have several names. Eoland, Folgenfold, Infold, uh, and Wudu, and Wudu Maraland. Wudu Maraland. So we've got uh, Eoland, which just means land by a river. Um, and, uh, you know, Christopher Tolkien talks about, like, you know, whether this is the the uh, boundaries of uh, Doriath. I tend to think not. I, I, my, uh, what I would associate with Eoland um, would be that it's basically kind of thinking of Menegroth, which, of course, is right on a river. And uh, uh, sort of associating the capital of the place with the place as a whole. Um, uh, Folgenfold, the hidden land, right? The, the hidden country, uh, or the in country, you know, the 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 the, the inner land inside. And Wudu Maraland, uh, Wudu meaning wood or forest. Um, it's the the border. So notice how Mara means border or boundary. So this is the forest land that's associated with borders, boundaries. So you might say like a a forest that's on the boundary of a land might be a Wudu Mara land, but that seems there seems to be more about it than this, right? Doriath is famous for its boundaries, for its border, for the girdle that's placed about it, right? Um, so to be identifying it as the land of wooden boundaries, of forest boundaries, um, uh, the forested boundary land. Uh, anyway, just the way that he kind of takes these concepts and puts them together, uh, especially in these alternative lists. Lists and I love Folgenfold. Uh, by the way, just one of my favorites. Gondolin, love the names of Gondolin, Stan Galdorberg, Folgenberg, and Galdorfasten. So the the common elements, right? Stan, which means stone, and that's of course a translation. The Gond uh, part of Gondolin means stone. Um, so uh, uh, I. I Stan Galdorberg is pretty close to a translation of Gondolin. Um, but, uh, so it's the... Galdor means enchantment. So it's the, the city of enchanted stone, right, is uh, Stan Galdorberg. Folgenberg, meaning the hidden fortress, right, the hidden castle. And uh, Galdorfasten, the enchantment fortress. Uh, um, anyway, yeah, so uh, I... I Again, n- note the essential elements that he's associating with Gondolin here, right? Folgen, right? Hidden. But I'm surprised that that's not more prominent, actually, right? Um, we only get one of its three names that has anything to do with concealment. Um, all of them, Berg, Berg, and Fasten, have to do with fortification, like being a castle, essentially. Um, but uh, two of them... Uh, Two of those have to do not with hiding, but with enchantment, 
right? Galdor Festen, the enchanted castle, essentially. And that's interesting, you know, that you would call Gondolin uh, the uh, enchanted fastness or fortress, you know, the, the fortress of enchantment. Um, kind of cool, right? And, uh, and, and definitely encourages us, I think, to kind of think about Gondolin in, in a different way. Because again, w- what we're imagining here, Alfwina hears these stories, right? And he goes back and he, he renders these things into Anglo-Saxon. So when he chooses what to call Gondolin in Anglo-Saxon, he is basically making the call, right? Alfwina, what do you think is most important about Gondolin? What do you think is the essence of Gondolin? Galdorfasten. Yeah, Stan Galdorberg. That's what's, that's what's uh, essential about Gondolin. And that's... And that's really cool. Uh, Gwendolyn uh, makes a great point. Says it almost links Gondolin to Lothlorien. Yeah, doesn't it, though? Exactly. It would sound... I mean, again, from one point of view, the two of them might not seem obviously parallel, right? Lorien and, and Gondolin. Now, Lorien and Doriath are sort of more clearly parallel, right? Um, you know... Uh, hidden forests that almost nobody goes inside of, and uh, which are primarily ruled by a very uh, high lady who has married far beneath herself. Right? You know, there's there's some obvious parallels there. Um, but but you're right, Gwendolyn. Um, thinking about Gondolin in the way the Anglo-Saxon name list encourages us to think about Gondolin does uh, help us to think about how it's it's actually kind of like. Uh, kind of like Lothlorien itself. Um, yeah, good, good. And the Silmaril, um, uh, connected with the, with the uh, sometimes called Sigil, um, or uh, Sigil, uh, so Sigil Mariel, the, the Sigil Mariels, Mariels, yeah, Sigil Mariels. Um, and you can hear it. If I could say it properly, you could hear it. I'm getting all tongue-tied here. Uh, the, the, the Sika Marils sounds a lot like Silmarils. It's not the same, right? But it's very, very similar. Um, and we could say it's a rope of sun. So I love Sigil is perfect, right? Sigil is, it means sun and it means jewel, right? So perfect word to associate with the Silmarils. Um, and the fact that he could then bring in Marils, uh, which means rope, Right and connect it with that. That happens to make a word that sounds quite like Silmarils. Um, but of course, as Christopher Tolkien points out, this would be used in the context of the Nauglifring, right, or the Nauglamir, uh, when the uh, Silmaril was set upon the uh, the the rope, right, upon the the necklace of the dwarves. Um, but again, just another brilliant example of him. Using this, you know, sort of taking the uh, the sound of the original word, um, and uh, and doing this really fun Anglo-Saxon backup, um, yeah, yeah, um, good, good, okay. Um, let's. I'm uh, for all my boasting about being on time. I'm being very slow here today. But anyway, the point is, you can see, here's the kind of fun you can have with this sort of name list. And so anytime you're presented with a list of names, I encourage you to uh, uh, to read through it in this way. Mark, I agree. I was also sad we didn't get a name for Nienna. Um, I was suspecting that she was going to be connected to uh, corpses also, as she still was primarily back then. But anyway, a little more Anglo-Saxon, then we'll move on. Um, this was a really fascinating uh, little snippet that we got here, right? Um, the Firabearn. 
uh, the children of uh, Fira. So the Fira, remember, is the word, and I love this word, right? Remember, I, I, I've been, I was talking about this for a long time, that I really wish there was a, collected, a collective word which means the elves and humans together, like the children of Iluvatar. Um, I wanted a specific, well, specifically, I wanted an adjective, right, um, to talk about, like, the, because, um, like, you know, normally you can talk about the, you know, like, a, a mortal versus divine, right, so I wanted, like, have the adjective divine that I can apply to uh, the Valar and stuff, um, but I want an adjective that is parallel with mortal, right, so so to contrast with divine, but you can't use mortal because elves aren't mortal, right, so uh, I, I wanted one that would encompass both elves uh, and men, and here we have... Um, uh, we have uh, fira, which is a word that an Anglo-Saxon word that Tolkien is using to collectively speak of both uh, the both of the races of the children of Iluvatar. So that's pretty cool. Um, so okay, so we have uh, uh, the fira bearn. Bearn mean, meaning children, um, and uh, we, s- section one that elderkin elfe othovine. So uh, that that older kin, right, the firstborn. Uh, the older kindred, elf or wina, elf or friends. Right, so those are two alternative ways in which the and Christopher Tolkien. Remember, he's like wina, uh, no idea. Right, he has no idea what to do with wina. Uh, friend, whose friends are they? Uh, are they the friends of humans? Like, well, kinda, some of them, right? Um, but it's kind of interesting. I, I'm not really sure exactly what Tolkien was going for there. Um. Uh, but Wiena, I mean, the word, Anglo-Saxon word, Wiena, means friend, uh, normally. That's normally what it means when you see it in, in a, you know, with a, in a word. Elf Wiena literally means elf friend. The, so the marshal, um, Elf Wiena, the marshal of, uh, uh, of the mark, his name means elf friend. Uh, anyway, okay. Um, uh, which is why, of course, uh, uh, um, Aemir's sword... Uh, uh, is named Guthwina, right? It just means war friend. Because, you know, your sword is your friend in war. Clearly, Guthwina. Good name for a sword. Okay, so now we have the three kindreds of That Eldrakun. Uh, first, we have the Ingwina, and these are called, these are, we get several different words for this, right? Um, and I love these, these, these different lists. Again, these are things which sort of show us how he's... To, and there, many of them are repetitions, but not all of them are repetitions. Some of them are kind of new, right? Uh, so the Ingwina, the friends of Ing, the people of Ing. Lüftelfe, Lüftelfe, Heachelfe, Huitelfe, Lixend, Goldwina. So who are the first kindred? Who are the first kindred? What do we see? They're the they're the they're the light elves, the high elves, the wheat alpha, the white elves, Lixend, the shining, the radiant ones, the Goldwina, the god friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're the ones that are hanging out with Manwe and Varda up on Deniquito, right? The Eadwina. Ead, uh, uh, Christopher says this is probably in this context probably means um, uh, uh, means riches like the friend of of riches or treasure. Um, uh, so we've got the treasure friends, right? 
Gold Alpha, Eorth Alpha, Deop Alpha, Radent, Thinningas. Okay, so Deop Alpha, Deep Elf, right? We've heard that before. That's in The Hobbit, right? Um, uh, so Luth Delpha, Deop Alpha, those are both uh, Anglo-Saxon translations of the simple phrases that are used to identify them in The Hobbit, right? Radend probably means something, uh, uh, you know, Christopher Tolkien says he's not quite sure what to do with that one, but it seems to have something to do with their desire for knowledge, right? Their thirst for knowledge. Uh, Finningas. So, uh, anytime you get the I-N-G-A-S ending there, it means the people of that. So, the Eorlingas, right, are the people of Eorl. Um, the Helmingas, right, are the people of Helm. That's, that's why, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Gambling, uh, who's, uh, out from the Westfold out there, um, in the Battle of Helm's Deep says, Fourth Helmingas! Uh, he's like, you know, fourth people of Helm. And they're defending Helm's Deep, and he's, uh, he's from Westfold. He identifies with Helm. And, of course, fourth, Eorlingas, <clears throat> the people of Eorl. So the Finningas the, are the people of Finn, right? Who was Finway, uh, the, the first king. Uh, okay, no problem. But again, notice Gold Elf and Eorthelf. Gold Elf is not something I would have associated, right? I did, have you ever heard him call the gnomes, the Noldoli, the Noldor Gold Elves anywhere? I don't remember that anywhere. Right, um, so that's really fascinating that he would call them that the Anglo-Saxon translation for them that they would be called gold elves and earth elves. It's kind of fun. That's really neat, right? Um, uh, it's, you know, notice how so Edwina, gold elf, Eorth elf seems that they, they seem to, almost all of them seem to have to do with like mining and uh, and uh, and treasure uh, and riches, right? That's. Um, Again, something perhaps sometimes we can kind of forget about the 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 Noldoli. I mean, not that we ever totally forget to associate the Noldor with treasure, as we always have the Silmarils to remind us. But uh, but you see what I mean? It's not uh, it's not necessary. I mean, even in the Hobbit, he chose deep elves, which of course can be taken at least in two senses, two senses, right? Not necessarily uh, as a statement of their relative altitude, right? Uh, but of the profundity of their thought. Um, uh, but yet, in the context of Gold Elf and Eorth Elf, Deop Elf begins to sound uh, a little bit more literal. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Okay, and uh, the Sawina, Sa Elf, Merathusen, Flotwina, Nowind, Elwingas. Okay, so we have, uh, this is of course the third kindred of the elves, the Sea Friends, uh, the Sea Elves. The, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the way that he, uh, uh, um, tra- Christopher translated Merathusen. It's like uh, the sea thrusters, like those who thrust through the sea. It's a poetic word used to describe people who sail on the sea. Uh, same, same with flotwina, um, uh, the you know flot, uh, you know from flotsam, right? Things that float, right? The friends of ships, right? And uh, no wind uh, navigators, the the uh, sailors. Um, Sea Rusher, thanks, James. I knew it was something like that. Um, and the Elwingas, the people of Elwe, right? Um, that's why they're called the Elwingas. It's doesn't have to do with Elwing at all, actually, except by accident and coincidence. Um, it's just the people of Elwing, of Elwe, rather. Um, uh, Elwe Singolo. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
so um uh, anyway it's, I, I I thought this was a, this was a uh, again here notice also how almost all of them of those four descriptors of the third kindred three of them have to do with ships not just with the ocean right um, so if we think about the uh, Solo Simpi, who will later become the Teleri, um, if we think of them as primarily like on the coast, looking out at the sea, or or you know, uh, like if we think of them in their, you know, in their city of Alquilonde, we're not getting the essence of it, right? We have to, you know. Of course, we think of the white ships, uh, but they're it's their sea craft that they are primarily associated with uh, by the Anglo-Saxons here. Okay. Um, with this, we will leave the uh, Anglo-Saxon appendix behind uh, and instead do something different, which is poetry! I want to look at appendix number two! Um, and look at a, a few passages from the Horns of Ilmir. The Horns of Ilmir has a fascinating history. I mean, it's one of those examples um, of... Uh, you may remember that bit in uh, Tolkien's story Leaf by Niggle, uh, about the painter Niggle, remember, where Niggle is uh, painting his uh, big painting of a tree, and he becomes more and more absorbed in his great painting. Um, and uh, remember that moment then when he takes, and even many of the other uh, paintings that he had done before, he kind of takes them and tacks them onto the edges of his great painting, right? Um, that um, very memorable uh, uh, image of, uh, um, of Nigel and, his, and the edges of his painting. Uh, is one of the uh, one of uh, I, I always kind of come back to that and, and sort of reminded of that in looking at sort of the history of things like the Horns of Ilmir. There are so many times Tolkien wrote a lot of poems, and many of them had nothing at all to do with Middle Earth and his mythology and you know the Silmarillion. Many of them were just sort of pieces of occasional verse, right? Uh, but almost all of them <laughs> eventually <laughs> get tacked on to the edges of his great picture. And the Horns of Ilmir is a great example. You've got this poem, which is was just Tolkien, when he was quite young, if he is right in his attribution. Um, I remember there was that one note that suggested that he first started the poem, or wrote the very first version of the poem, in 1910, um, when he was 18. Which, if true, uh, is would make this would make that bit of it anyway um one of the uh one of the only one of the earliest surviving poetry fragments of Tolkien's period i mean one of that we we have almost nothing from earlier than that it's 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 that's the 1910 is the early 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 end uh, of Tolkien's recorded poetic career um so and he's 18 at that point um so so anyway, so you know we got and we we have him revising it. By the way, the reason I say if that's accurate is Tolkien didn't always, of course, remember accurately. Remember some of those things when he's writing dates on things. Some of those things he was writing decades and decades later. Um, which the older I get, the more sympathetic I get with what seemed to be Tolkien's apparent mistakes uh, with some of those things. I mean, I can't remember um, exactly what year I did or thought something. Um, so um, anyway. Um, 
uh, yeah, Kate, that is about the time um, when uh, he decided uh, he was, well, it was, it was, it was, it was still before that time when he decided he was going to be a poet. Uh, but yeah, that's why he didn't, um, uh, you know, with the, with the uh, TCBS, um, the Council of Oxford, yeah, yeah, um, he, he really didn't actively think of himself as a poet until then. Um, but, um, but we do have some evidence of some stuff that he had written prior to that, the, um, uh, the the wood sunshine fragment that Humphrey Carpenter gives, for instance, which is 1910, I think. Um, anyway, so I do just a little brief note on Niggle and his tree and the fascinating history of the Horns of Ilmir, which again, so it's this other poem that he's writing just because he's like 20-ish and thinking about the world and looking out at the ocean and everything, right? And then, but, and before you know it, it's Tour's poem. Right, that he writes about uh, about Olmo and his meeting with Olmo. Um, so let's uh, let's look at some bits. Here's the opening of the poem. Twas in the land of willows, where the grass is long and green. I was fingering my harp strings, for a wind had crept unseen, and was speaking in the treetops, while the voices of the reeds were whispering reedy whispers as the sunset touched the meads. Inland music's subtly magic that those reeds alone could weave. Twas in the land of willows that once Ilmir came at eve. In the twilight by the river, on a hollow thing of shell, he made immortal music till my heart beneath his spell was broken in the twilight, and the meadows faded dim to great gray waters heaving round the rocks where seabirds swim. Hear it? Hear the rhythm of this poem? Very, very pronounced uh, melody to this. Very rhythmic. Um, Okay, former poetry class students. What's the meter? And if you took my poetry class, you don't even have to count it out. You just know. Because this is one of Tolkien's favorite meters. What's the meter? Yep. Kate, you got it. Iambic uh, iambic uh, 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 heptameter. Um seven a seven foot iambic line um i was fingering my heart i was fingering my harp strings for a wind had crept unseen oh and i did it wrong and was speaking in the treetops while the voices of the reeds were whispering reedy whispers as the sunset touched the meads inland music subtly magic that those reeds alone could weave and did it wrong again inland music subtly magic that those reeds alone could weave twas in the land of willows that once ilmir came at eve um yeah iambic heptameter um this is uh this is one of tolkien's favorite meters this is the same meter that galadriel uses um i sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew for instance um and uh, this, again, you've got... It, I, I've said this before, and I'll say this every time. Tolkien's poetry... This is true of pretty much, every po- uh, pretty much all poetry. At least... Let me reveal my bias. All good poetry. But uh, um, Tolkien's poetry, certainly, you've got to read it out loud. Um, when you just look at it off the screen, you're missing more than half of the experience. Um, Tolkien wrote by ear. He wrote for the ear. I'm quite fully convinced of that. Um, you hear how flowing it is. Notice uh, not only the regularity 
of the meter. It's not perfectly regular by any stretch. There are definitely variations. There are definitely irregularities to it. Um, it's not monotonous in the way that perfectly regular verse can uh, so often become monotonous. Um, but it is also heavily enjammed. Right? That is, one line flows right into the next. There's no... Um, uh, there's there are very few clear pauses. You'll notice that those first six lines, six long fourteen syllable lines, are all one sentence. Right? Twas in the land of willows, where the grass is long and green. I was fingering my harp strings, for a wind had crept unseen and was speaking in the tree tops, while the voices of the reeds were whispering reedy whispers as the sunset touched the meads. Inland music, subtly magic, that those reeds alone could weave. Twas in the land of willows that once Ilmir came at eve. <sighs> right? Um, it's a really breathless. Uh, in that sense, it, it it all it all it all smoothly goes together. That I think is important. It does have, uh, um, it does have a a the 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 center. I think the the sort of the center of the imagery here. Um, notice what it's actually describing. We've got him him describing fingering his harp strings, right? So we've got the harp music, right? That's being invoked and. Wind is speaking in the treetops, right? So we've got this gentle wind rustling the tops of the trees, and we've got the voices of the reeds whispering reedy whispers. We're whispering reedy whispers as the sunset touched the meads. Lots of gentle imagery, right? The treetops are speaking. The reedy whispers are whispering, right? We've got the, re- the repetition of the word whisper, and you know, and you can see why, right? Well, at least, no, you can't see why, but you can hear why, right? Whisper is a perfect word, whisper, whisper, whisper. The word whisper forms a whisper, right? Orally. Um, so he repeats whisper twice on either side of the word reedy, right? Because that's whispering is the sound that the reeds are making. We're whispering reedy whispers as the sunset touched the meads. The sunset is just touching them, right? Um, the subtle magic of the inland musics that those reeds alone could weave. I, lo- I love the... Uh, that imagery of the reeds weaving magic, well, and weaving music, because of course reeds are themselves woven together. Like you, you would weave reeds together to make like a, a mat or uh, like a you know a basket or something like that, right? Um, but the reeds here themselves are weaving something. They're crafting something, and the thing that they're crafting, the the music, the magic that they're crafting, is the thing that they're whispering. Um, anyway, so in the midst of this, Ilmir came. At eve, in the twilight by the river, on a hollow thing of shell, he made immortal music, till my heart beneath his spell was broken in the twilight, and the meadows faded dim to great gray waters heaving round the rocks where seabirds swim. Ilmir shows up, right? Ulmo shows up in the midst of this gentle, susurrant scene that is being described in those first six lines. Notice first the change in the rhythm. Not the change in the meter. The meter doesn't change. Um, but the change in the sound. They are no longer smoothly enjammed, the lines. Right? Did you hear that? In the twilight by the river on a hollow thing of shell, he made immortal music, till my heart beneath his spell was broken in the twilight, and the meadows faded dim to great gray waters heaving round the rocks where seabirds swim. Um, those breaks or, or, or near breaks there in the middle of the line alters the, the, the beat a little bit. It's not quite as flowing, right? Um, we have a, a little bit more of an interruption, 
right? We have his heart is broken in the twilight beneath his spell, right? Um, and he is suddenly shifted. He is cha- he is he is transported to somewhere else by the music, the immortal music, uh, which is again associated with magic, right? We had inland musics, subtly magic. This is not an inland music, right? This is definitely a, an, an out to sea music that Olmo is singing, uh, but it's still a spell. Right, just like the music and magic that we had associated back in line five, uh, and he is suddenly transformed. And the place that he goes to is a very different place from the gently susurrant, uh place in the willows where he originally was. Right? Um, yeah, Gwendolyn, isn't the uh, the uh, the alliteration and world and word pairing? Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? I love the way that he does that. His his use of um, of occasional alliteration and again with Tolkien it's mostly about the sounds of that like he's he's wanting to hit on that sound for a particular reason and to join he uses alliteration to join words and phrases together and to connect ideas from one line to another. Um anyway, yeah, yeah, really, really good stuff. Um But anyway, uh the tone changes significantly when uh, Ilmir brings us to the coast. With the with the with the spell of his uh, of his music, lo, I heard the embattled tempest roaring, rolling up. Oh, sorry, I screwed it up. Lo, I heard the embattled tempest roaring, rolling up behind the tide. When the trumpet of the first wind sounded, and the gray sing sa- sea sang and cried, as a new white wrath woke in him, and his armies rose to war and swept in billowed cavalry toward the walled and moveless shore. There the windy-bannered fortress of those huge and virgin coasts flung back the first thin feelers of the elder tidal hosts, flung back the restless streamers that, like arms of a tentacled thing, coiling and creeping onward, did rustle and suck and cling. Then a sigh arose, and a murmuring on that stealthy whispering van, while behind the torrents gathered and the leaping billows ran, till the foam-haired water-horses in green rolling volumes come, a mad tide trampling landward, and their war-song burst to flame. All right, rolling came. I think I screwed up that previous line, sorry. My apologies. In, gr- in green rolling volumes came, a mad tide trampling landward, and their war-song burst to flame. Oh, did I skip a line? Man, I'm sorry. My reading is awful. Oh, I sk- Oh no, sorry. I skipped a line. I didn't include the crashed in endless cadency. Yes, that is a good line. Uh, that is a good phrase, rather, Roy. I agree with you. Okay. And by the way, uh, veterans will notice how um, restrained I am being and not reading through every single line of this entire poem. I'm, I'm being so restrained. Um... Yeah, good. Yana and Kate are both uh, uh, struck by the, uh, the 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 water horses, and this seeming to be, as Yana says, this seemed to be uh, uh, this, this seems to be where Gandalf got the idea from. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really uh, uh, cool uh, metaphor, cool connection there. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and Nancy's thinking about the last unicorn, right, with the unicorns and the waves. Yeah, yeah. Um, notice that we're now in this warlike, right? We've gone from this really peaceful, quiet scene to this incredibly tempestuous scene. The choice of imagery here is really fascinating, right? We've got um, 
the 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 fundamental image is martial, right? Is is battle imagery, the embattled tempest, right? At the beginning and you've got the trumpets sounding and the white wrath wakes in them as their armies rose to war and the billowed cavalry, right? The the windy bannered fortress of the coast, right? So we've got an assault upon a fortress. Um you know, and that so that's and and you know we get that uh, we come back to it at the end with the water horses right, uh, uh, the mad tide trampling landward and their war song burst of flame. So we've got that fundamental, um, what is it, so, you know, the, the sea making constant war upon the coast, um, but we also have some of that other stuff. Oh, Kate, that's really interesting. Kate says, uh, isn't there an echo of Smith's experience in the storm and fairy? Um, oh, are you thinking of the storm? Uh, the storm when he's hanging onto the birch tree, that storm, the wild wind that uh, that breaks up—is that the moment? Or are you thinking of the time when he was at the coast and the uh, the elven mariners came back uh, and sort of passed over him? I'm not sure which which one you're thinking of. When he sees the marching elves, yeah, oh, both of them. Okay, yeah, sure, sure, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, Roy says uh, Tolkien is the master at coupling imagery with sounds, coiling and creeping onward. Did rustle and suck and cling. Um, the word "suck" is an unusual one, right? Um, but of course, one of the delightful things about the word "suck" is that it's onomatopoetic, right? Uh, <laughs> that's the word "suck" sounds like sucking, right? So, and and rustle also. Um, Russell and suck are both onomatopoetic words, and Tolkien loves to exploit this sort of onoma- the that that sort of innate onomatopoeia in some words like this, uh, and he does he does a great job of that. But that notice that imagery that kind of shifts in the middle there. It, it seems to me right the um, when we get the thin feelers of the elder title hosts, um, the comparison of the so the first waves come breaking in right and then. And they're, they, they, they're flung back like the arms of a tentacled thing coiling and creeping onward. That's um, a little disturbing. But yeah, of course, Kate's now remembering uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the pool, right? With the watcher in the water outside Moria. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, none of these images ever get lost, ever get wasted, right? Uh, completely. We see Tolkien was a great recycler. Of uh, of of words and images and sounds and and poetry, um, yeah yeah. Anyway, the combination of sea as oncoming army uh, assailing the the, uh, the 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 cliffside and sea as great slimy tentacled thing uh, reaching out. Uh, it's uh, it's many arms to uh, uh, suck and cling at uh, at, at the land. Um, very different, right? Very different from what we saw at first. And again, thinking about this as the horns of Ilmir, right? This is the uh, this is the sea longing awakening in Tuor's heart. This is, I mean, we're, we're supposed to be associating this with Ilmir coming to Tuor and telling him of his mission. And I find it, it's all very interesting stuff. It's a very interesting. Um, kind of combination of things, right? Um, this is uh, not necessarily how... I mean, Olmo does not come like, I am the Beneficent One who am seeking to 
you know, bring help to the forgotten people while the Valar are ignoring them. I'm not. I'm remembering. I have heard your cries, and I am coming to give you succor. Right? That's not his tone at all. It doesn't. That's not the imagery that is being called up by Ilmir's music at all. Um, let's look at the end. Then the magic drifted from me, and that music loosed its bands far, far off. I, I think this has to be two syllables. Conches calling. Um, I'm sure of it. Conches. He must have pronounced it conches. Because it has to be two syllables. Conches calling. That, that, that must be. Um, far, far off, conches calling. Lo, I stood in the sweet lands, and the meadows were about me, where the weeping willows grew, where the long grass stirred beside me, and my feet were drenched with dew. Only the reeds were rustling, but a mist lay on the streams, like a sea-roke drawn far inland, like a shred of salt sea-dreams. "'Twas in the land of willows that I heard the unfathomed breath "'of the horns of Ilmir calling, and shall hear them till my death.'" What do you see? What do you notice about the ending? Where does this poem end? In longing? Is that what we're getting at the end? Longing? We were told to associate this poem with sea longing, right? This is the moment when the sea longing enters into the heart of Tuor and never goes away, right? Good, yeah, Kate is recalling that we're returning to the beginning of the poem, right? "'Twas in the land of willows where the grass is long and green. I was fingering my harp strings for a wind had crept unseen, right? Um, and at the end, in that final cu- in that final couplet there, till the foam-haired water horses... In- oh, sorry, that's just not the right one. "'Twas in the land of willows that I heard the unfathomed breath of the horns of Ilamir calling, and shall hear them till my death." Um, so we we hear him... You know, the first... So you see how the, the poem sort of returns back to the beginning and closes itself, right? Uh, "'Twas in the land of willows... And he describes that initial scene. In the end, he returns to "'Twas in the land of willows." Um, but now, in his sort of summary of what has happened, right, his concluding thought on what has happened, he heard the unfathomed breath, unfathomed, a wonderful word to use of anything of Olmos, um, he heard the unfathomed breath of the horns of Ilmir calling, and he shall hear them till his death. Um, yeah, Carita says, uh, Sea longing is very romantic and all, but being forever restless uh, can't make me feel that this fate is all well and good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I just let's read it again. Then the magic drifted from me, and that music loosed its band. So he's been set for, so the vision leaves. Right, the spell um, uh, that the music cast on him was gone. Far, far off, conches calling. Lo, I stood in the sweet lands, and the meadows were about me, where the weeping willows grew, where the long grass stirred beside me, and my feet were drenched with dew. Only the reeds were rustling, but a mist lay on the streams, like a sea roke drawn far in, drawn far inward, like a shred of salt sea dreams. Yeah, he is changed, Kate. Uh, yeah, Kate is reminded of. Uh, yeah, Kate, you're 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 uh, 
on fire with the Lord of the Rings connections here, right? Kate's thinking about Legolas after he heard the gulls, um, as Brian Dimmick says in that moment, uh, you know, when he is forever changed. Notice how different his surroundings seem to him, right? Think about the, only the reeds were rustling. Right? Think about how the rustling of the reeds, remember it was the reeds in the opening lines uh, that, you know, inland music, subtly magic, that those reeds alone could weave, right? That there was this unique inland magic that the reeds were weaving, right? That was his uh, relationship to the reeds at the opening of the poem. At the end, my feet were drenched with dew, only the reeds were rustling. Only the reeds were rustling. There's only one sound, the reeds were rustling, right? No more inland magic yeah. Oh, Arthur uh, C. Roke, yeah, no, don't be ashamed to ask about that. That's one of those super, super obscure words that if you said to Tolkien, like, you made that word up, didn't you? He would be like, no, 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 that's, an, that's you know, it's a, it's a Middle English word. And then he'd be like, okay, right, but nobody uses it anymore. He'd be like, no, it is still used in certain dialects in obscure parts of the country, um, obscurely, by very old people. Um, anyway, Roke, it's like mist, basically, a sea mist. Um... Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 a sea mist drawn far inward. So a mist. Only the reeds were rustling, but a mist lay on the streams like a sea roke drawn far inward, like a shred of salt sea dreams. You still see sort of like the. It's like the 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 music of 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 Ilmir has dampened. You, again, you don't hear the the reeds aren't musical. They're not magical, magical or musical anymore. Right, um, there's this mist, like a sea rock, right? the, like a mist from the sea itself, uh, that has come far inland and cloaked the reeds. Uh, and then he compares that in a simile that they are that 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 sea rock, that sea mist, is like a shred of salt sea dreams. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so we see he sees around him what looks to him like a physical manifestation of. Uh, of sort of the the remnants, the after echoes of Ilmir's music. Um, some of you, Karina, you are comparing his uh, the dew, his um, the the where my feet were drenched with dew. Uh, thinking about that to uh, sort of being like 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 tears. Well, in the context of the of the weeping willows, we didn't get that at the beginning. That is, we're, we knew we were in the land of willows, where the grass is long and green, um, and there was a reference to treetops and to reeds, but not... Sp- the, that, that Talking about weeping willows did not come up, but now now, now the willows are weeping, um, Carita, so I, I think that there's um, um, there's evidence for associating that uh, that dew with, 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 with tears there. Um... Especially since the way we also get that mist, right? The sea mist. Um, uh, so we get salty water droplets here in the sea, and so like tears of his response uh, to the sea longing. The, I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which this all kind of comes together and, and uh, evokes things. So yeah, yeah, Gwendolyn is thinking of the loss and the emptiness. Yeah, the loss of that vision that he's got, and he's going to be longing for the sea ever after. And remember from here, um, remember what Olmo's doing, right? Olmo comes to him, 
and says, okay, um, go really far inland, <laughs> right? And keep going until you come to a, a place surrounded by mountains, and uh, that's your job, right? Go there. Um, and he's so Tuar is not going to get to the sea for a really, really long time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Gwendolyn says, I can hear the ethereal music dying away over the sea, leaving only f- the forgotten fragments of prior bliss. Yeah, yeah. And the really cool thing here, of course, is remember, you know, this is one thing, you know, remember the contrast. When we get to Tuar in the Silmarillion, Tuar is going to have been moved over to the coast, right? The concept of Nevrast and Vinyamar and the armor left for Tuar, as we remember, is not in the story yet. Um, so Tuar isn't there. He's not on the coast. He's not. He's not meeting Olmo in the storm on the shore, as he does in the published Silmarillion, and as he does really impressively in the longer tour version uh, fragment that's included in Unfinished Tales. Um, no, he's still in the land of willows. He's still inland, right? Olmo is coming to him by the river uh, to uh, uh, to 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 have his talk with him. So. This it, it, to me, it kind of makes it more poignant. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I really kind of like that early, um, uh, that early concept of, of of Ulmo coming to him in the land of willows. Um, that um, it's not just that he's hearing the voice of Ulmo coming to him over the sea. He is he hears the voice of Ulmo coming to him in this admittedly watery place, right, with weeds and willows. Um, but uh, but but far from the sea, and yet he's then transported in his mind, in his enchantment, to the sea. And when it passes, he's no longer by the sea, and he is surrounded once again by land, um, and he is far inland again. And yet, these like fragments of the sea are still around him, um, and he still he still hears them, he still sees them, even while he's inland. And, and the way that that gets conveyed, the way that his perception of the of the reeds, for instance, has changed the way that he's still hearing and seeing see things. Um, the kind of ambiguity of the tears. I think there's an ambiguity in the weeping. Um, weeping for his fate. It's a hard fate that's been laid on him. Um, and uh, weeping in desire for the sea. Um, anyway. All right. All right, all right, enough. Let's talk about the map and the Embarcanta, because I'm running out of time. So uh, I don't want to talk about too much about the first Silmarillion map. Uh, the first Silmarillion map is interesting. The main point I wanted to make about it, um, main thing that jumped out at me when I was looking at it, I mean, it's it's kind of cool, it's kind of interesting, but I don't want to go over it in detail. Um, what I do want to just notice as we go past is... The first, the Silmarillion map that Christopher Tolkien includes here um, is it gives us a little bit of insight into how Tolkien thinks and plans his stories. That is to say, thinking about the relationship between the map and the stories. Now, it's a little hard because, as uh, Christopher explains, it's, it's, it's hard to date the map precisely, and of course, he wrote over it like four different times, so trying to identify when exactly he wrote each different thing uh, that's on the map is really, really hard. Um, But there are still a few elements that really jumped out at me, and the main point that I would make, the main observation, I guess, that I would make, is that we can see in many places evidence of Tolkien 
drawing these maps and writing in on these maps as part of his actual creative process. That is to say, we can see evidence that he's not just drawing a map to illustrate his story. He is drawing... He is there's, there's evidence that, at least in places, the map itself is driving the story. We can see other moments in Tolkien's career when this happens. I'm thinking in particular of uh, some passages from The Hobbit. Um, if you look in Volume 2 of John Ratliff's History of the Hobbit book, you can find this. It's in the description of the Lonely Mountain. It's just part of the landscape description, so it's not like an intrinsically fascinating, necessarily, scene in The Hobbit. Not a crucial character development moment or anything. It's just in his, in his landscape description of the area around the Lonely Mountain. But what John Ratliff points out, and he does it, John Ratliff does a really great job of this, is, uh, you know, he gives several different maps and sketches that Tolkien had drawn of the Lonely Mountain and its environs, um, and, you know, at, at the time when he was working on it. And you can see some pretty clear evidence that he altered the map, uh, and then when the map and the story were in conflict, he tended to go back and rewrite the story in order to make it fit the map. It's like the map was where he was working out, okay, this is what this is really like. He was not like, let me try to draw what I wrote about. That wasn't what he was doing. Instead, he draws the thing and is like, yes, that's the little limit. This is what I want. And then he describes it in prose. So, so like, which came first, the pictures or the words? It seems to be the pictures. A lot of the time with Tolkien, it seems to be the pictures. Um, and so these maps, again, it's, this is not just a way for him to keep the details straight and to make sure this this stuff, but but we can actually see him yeah Philip and it does happen in the Lord of the Rings as well um, but uh, anyway so there are just so just two two quick examples I wanted to give uh, specifically of what I'm talking about in the first Silmarillion map uh, two of the entries that Christopher Tolkien gives um, for names that are on the map Brithambar and Elderest. This is the first occurrence of the havens of the Phallas. That Ossay persuaded some of the Teleri to remain on the beaches of the world is mentioned in Quenta section 3, and in a later rewriting of a passage in Quenta section 11, note 14, the presence of the elves from the Phallas before the Battle of Unnumbered Tears is referred to. These places have names already, though, on the map, right? And so the suggestion here is that the story has already progressed in his own mind, as he's drawing the map. Of course, he has the concept in the stories, right? Uh, the concept that some of the, you know, again, I'll say persuaded some of the Teleri to remain behind, that's been there, right? Um, the concept that we've got, you know, these elves who are still on the coast, it's part of the story, but it's not a thoroughly developed part of the story. And yet when he's doing the map, he we see him filling out the story, right? Similarly, in the uh, the reference to Orc Mountains, Extensive highlands cover the entire region between Brithambar and the range forming the southern fence of what was later called Nevrast. On the later map, these highlands are retained in the region between the sources of the Brithon and the Eldor, Ninning, and are too little represented on my map in the published Silmarillion. I love when Christopher Tolkien admits that he should have done things differently in the Silmarillion, or uh, sort of points out... uh, Of course, he was the one who drew the maps from the beginning. He was the one who did the Lord of the Rings maps uh, for publication. Here Morgoth reaches the shores is probably a reference to the story that has not yet emerged in the text. 
that in the years after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, Morgoth sent great strength over Hithlum and Nevrast, and they came down the rivers Brithon and Nenning and ravaged all the Phallus. Um, so, probably, Christopher says, that's probably the story being referred to. If he is right, uh, that these are the, that that's why these are referred to as the Orc Mountains, um, it again shows, as he's drawing this part of the map, we see stories now are beginning to sort of bubble up. The, the, the Phallas and the cities of the Phallas and who those elves are and everything else, that's been really, it's, it's been an ill-formed or at least an underdeveloped portion of the story. Vague concept has been there, but it hasn't really played a central role. Um, now we're beginning, again, it seems to be that the, the very process of drawing the map is suggesting new stories to him, which have not made their way into... So he hasn't included in the sketch, didn't include it in the Quenta, um, but, uh, but, but, it's, but it's there, and it's growing. The concept seems to be, seems to be there already. Um, so again, it's just, I, I think, even if this is all we take from it, and I think there are many other things that you can learn from it, um, to me, this is one of the really fascinating things in looking at the map, to sort of begin to get this idea of the, of the, 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 the process. Uh, exactly, as Kate Neville says, he seems to need the visual. He has to illustrate scenes, create coats of arms and sigils, and recreate old documents. Not surprising that Niggle was a painter. Yeah, people, I think people too often underestimate the importance of Tolkien's visual art. Um, it was really important to Tolkien, clearly. I mean, he spent a lot of time doing this. Um, and I. Uh, it was, and it was clear. It was. It seemed to me a. It does seem to me a, a really essential part of his. I mean, if it weren't, he wouldn't spend so much time on it, right? He wouldn't do so much drawing, if the drawing itself was not was not really, uh, uh, sort of part of this. So, yeah, yeah. Roy says the maps and names just get him going exactly. And I love these glimpses where it seems like we can actually perceive that happening, right? When putting dots on a map has made these stories bubble up into his mind. Pretty cool. All right. Let's talk about the Ambarcanta. Ambarcanta is a little complicated, right? But let's let's see if we can sort it out. Okay. Start at the beginning. All about the world are the Ilurambar, or walls of the world. They are as ice and glass and steel, being above all imagination of the children of Earth, cold, transparent, and hard. That is, they are colder, more transparent, and more hard than any imagination of the children of the Earth. Right? So, so anything anything cold, transparent, or hard that you can picture, it's more than that. Okay? Of all three of those, of those, of those elements. They cannot be seen, nor can they be passed, save by the door of night. Infinitely hard, infinitely transparent, and infinitely cold. Within these walls, the earth is globed. Above, below, and upon all sides is Vaya, the enfolding ocean. Now, within these walls, the earth is globed. Let us not make a mistake here. He's not saying the earth is a globe, right? It is not... The the world is flat. This is still his flat world cosmology, right? Um, when he says the earth is globed within these walls, he clearly means the flat earth exists within the globe of the walls of the Ilurambar, um, like, you know, a 
village in, uh, like a snowy village inside of a snow globe, right? Just so in the same sense that the snowy v- village is globed in a snow globe, right? Uh, so is uh, the earth globed within the walls of the Ilu Rambar. Um, so yeah, the earth basically is a snow globe. That's exactly right, Yana. Almost entirely exactly like that. Um, yeah, I, um, Gwendolyn, I was thinking about that too, about the thinking about this and the uh, the 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 ancient and medieval um, spherical universe. In the end, there are obviously some similarities, right? I mean, it's a globe, it's a sphere, and there are concentric spheres going on, but not many concentric spheres. And at the end of the day, the Earth is still flat. Um, and the medievals always believed in a round world. <clears throat> the world is round. It's the inner. It's the the Earth is the innermost sphere of the concentric spheres of the uh, you know of the ancient of the Aristotelian universe. Um, <clears throat> so it's um, it's in the end. I don't think it bears too much similarity conceptually uh, to uh, to the concentric universe. Um, but anyway. Okay, let's keep going. So we've got Vaya, the enfolding ocean surrounding it. Okay, and by the way, I do have the visual aid. All right, diagram one, right? Okay, so we've got the Avakuma, the outer darkness, right? Out here, right? We've got the Ilurambar, the walls of the world, right? That's the infinitely hard, transparent, and cold sphere. And then we've got the Vaya, the enfolding ocean, the inner layer just inside the Ilurambar, Right, it's got the walls of the world <clears throat> with the via the enfolding ocean. Okay, cool. All right, let's go back. All right. uh, okay, the enfolding ocean. But this is more like to sea below the earth and more like to air above the earth. In via below the earth dwells Ulmo. Above the earth lies the air, which is called Vista and contains birds and clouds. Therefore, it is called above Fanyamar, or cloud home, and below Iwinore, or Birdland. But this air lies only upon Middle Earth and the Eastern Seas, and its proper bounds are the mountains of Valinor in the west and the walls of the sun in the east. Therefore, clouds come seldom to Valinor. It's, uh, it's always, uh, it's the sun's always shining in Valinor, right? I mean, except when it's evening, or morning, actually. Uh, but, okay, sorry. Uh, so, so, and the mortal birds pass not beyond the peaks of its mountains. But in the north and south, where there is most cold and darkness, and Middle-earth extends nigh to the walls of the world, Vaya and Vista and Ilmen flow together and are confounded. Okay. All right. Hang on. There we go. Okay. All right. So, let's review. Right? So we have Vaya. Now, I'm not going to pretend. I don't get Vaya at all. <clears throat> I don't understand it. I mean, he says that Vaya is more like to see below the earth and more like to air above the earth. I I, I can't picture... I, he's lost me. Imaginatively, he's lost me. I don't understand what Vaya is. Is it like... It's kind of like water, but it's also kind of like air. I mean, like, what is it? Is it liquid? Gaseous? Is it... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. Is it ether? It seems to be ether. That is some other element that isn't really water and isn't really gas. Um, but it's like the enfolding ocean, but it's only ocean in like a theoretical sense, right? Or like a like a like a metaphorical sense. It's it's like an ocean. It's not literally an ocean. It's not water. So we don't have water all around, right? Um, 
it's the enfolding ocean in the sense that like an ocean enfolds an island and via enfolds Arda, so it's like, it's ocean-ish, right? It's ocean-esque. Um, but it's a thing, right? So I like, the only way I can think of it that makes any sense to me at all is as like ether, right? Some other element. It's not water and it's not air. But some of it is below the earth down here, and this is where Olmo hangs out, and some of it is up, up above the air, the air, so this is like air, but it's not air, because this is air, and that's something else. Whatever it is. I don't know. It's ether. That's fine. This is the vista. This is the air, right? So here's the atmosphere up here, and this is where we get, right, it's divided into the into Fanyamar and uh, Iwanore, right? So we got Birdland down here where the birds fly, and, uh, you know, Fanyamar, the higher atmosphere, right, where there are clouds, but it's too high up for birds, right? So, uh, uh, and then you've got, and, and so you've got Via, but it's all Vista. And so as we can see, the Vista ends, where does it say and where it ends? Okay, so we've got, um, uh, okay, this air lies only upon Middle Earth and the Inner Seas. So this is Middle Earth, and this is the Inner Seas, right? Inner Sea 1, Inner Sea 2, right? Okay, only and its proper bounds are the mountains of Valinor in the west, uh-huh, and the walls of the sun in the east. Oh, 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 right? Okay. So that's where the air is. So there's no air in Valinor. Right? No air in Valinor. Um wait, how can there be no air in Valinor? Ah, well. We keep reading. And this is one of the passages which um, I the first time I read it made so many things make sense that I didn't get at all before, and I've been waiting until we get here to talk about them. Ilmen is that air that is clear and pure, being pervaded by light, though it gives no light. Ilmen lies above Vista, and is not great in depth, but is deepest in the west and east, and least in the north and south. Okay, hang on, wait, what? All right, so Ilmen, yeah, here it is. So there's, some, between Vista, between the air, the what we would call the atmosphere, right? Between the atmosphere and Vaya, whatever Vaya is, there's another layer called Ilmen, right? Okay, so Ilmen is this, is the, and it's, it's, it's thickest, right? In the east and west, right? Numen and Roman, Roman east, Numen west, right? North and south, would be like the z-axis on this picture. Um, so okay, right, all right. So uh, so yeah, this is not north and this is not south, obviously, right? North is into the page and south is up or vice versa. I'm not sure which. Um, no way. Yes, I am. East, west. Yeah, south would be. <laughs> Actually, I don't know. Never mind. Okay, fine. Ilman. Uh, let, let, let me not get distracted. Okay, so Ilman is here between the Vista and the Vaya, and it's thickest on the east and west. So these are the mountains of Valinor, right? Right. The air, properly so-called, only goes to the mountains of Valinor. So there's no air in Valinor. There is Ilmen instead. Okay? All right, fine. What is Ilmen again? Uh, let's explain this. In Valinor, the air is Ilmen. Uh, uh, wait, yeah, okay. Sorry, we'll come in again. Uh-huh, right, uh, it is... Uh, clear and pure being pervaded by light, though it gives no light, right? So it, it does not emit light, Ilmen, um, but it's pervaded by light. Okay, it's way, you know, like it's way up above the clouds, right? The purest light comes in the Ilmen. That makes 
sense, I guess, except where does the light come from? Uh, no idea. Vaya? Is Vaya luminous? Is that what he's suggesting, that Vaya is luminous? It would have to be, right? If Ilman is pervaded by light, unless he's suggesting it's pervaded by light from below, right? From, like, the lamps, trees, and or sun and moon. Uh... Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay, anyway, sorry. Carrying on. In case you haven't noticed, I, I have a hard time with the Ambar Kanta. I, I have to really labor to make sure I get this. Uh, Tolkien's cosmology, Tolkien's early cosmology is one of the things I have the hardest time with. Um, I don't know if it's just, like, one of the ways in which my mind works really differently from Tolkien's, that, like, just the his sort of mythic concepts here... I have a hard time connecting with them. But anyway, okay, never mind. Ilmen lies above Vista, right? Okay, uh, good. In Valinor, the air is Ilmen, right. But Vista flows in at times, especially in Elvenholm, part of which is at the eastern feet of the mountains. And if Valinor is darkened, and this air is not cleansed by the light of the Blessed Realm, it takes the form of shadows and gray mists. But Ilmen and Vista will mingle being of like nature, but Ilmen is breathed by the gods, and purified by the passage of the luminaries. The luminaries, that means the sun and moon. For in Ilmen, Varda ordained the courses of the stars, and later of the sun and moon. Okay, so there are stars in Ilmen, too. So, it's pervaded by light in that sense. Also. Okay. Now. So. You remember the bits? Um... Uh, do you remember the bits that uh, that we talked about way back when it was in the uh, early part of the Quenta, when we were talking about Elvenholm, right? And uh, when the elves first came over to Valinor, and remember they first went over to Valinor, and they didn't like it in Valinor, like they needed something. Remember, like they needed something in, in Middle-earth that was... So like, there are a couple references in the earlier works, in the Book of Lost Tales and in the sketch in Quenta, which are to me very... Uh, greatly illuminated by this paragraph in uh, in the Ambar Kanta. One is that one that I was just talking about. So that passage in the Quenta where it said, the elves needed a time to breathe the air of Middle-earth. Right? And it... I took that. I mean, when I read the Quenta the first time, I took that as being merely metaphorical. Right? That, like, they just needed to... Like, needed some kind of connection to Middle-earth. But it turns out that it's, like, literally physical. Like, the air, the, the actual air of Middle-earth is different than the air in Valinor. So, if they hang out just in Valmar, which is going to be, like, I don't know, here-ish, right? On the other side of the mountains of Valinor, if the elves just live over here, there's nothing to breathe but omen. They can't breathe. There's no air. Right? No regular air. No vista air. And apparently, elves need, we're told. They need the elves, the air of Middle-earth. That is, the air of vista. And so, the, the remember, this is why the Valar make the, the what, what will be called the Calcarian, right, the gap uh, in the mountains, where they build the, you know, the Hill of Thun, uh, and uh, Aqualande is right nearby, and Tolarisea is right out there, right? So that the light comes through, and, and the air comes through. Now notice, it says what happens to the air. Uh, here, let me, let me move forward here to the, to the actual text. Um... Uh, yeah, this bit. Okay, and if Valinor is dark, so the air, the light in Ilmen purifies, so the air is kind of breathing through, right? 
kind of like a, uh, kind of like on a on a on a like a really like a really cold day when like your heat is pouring out the door right into the freezing cold right and you can stand outside the door and feel the heat come out uh, from the cold um, you know the air of Middle Earth is kind of pouring into Valinor through the Calakirian there it mingles there at the at the boundary um, but um, it's okay because it gets purified by the luminaries right the sun and moon the light of Ilmen purifies Vista when it bleeds over into Valinor, but if the lights are not there, it takes the form of shadows and gray mists, right? Okay, okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, Kate, it's not quite like a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> Never mind. I'm not even going to explain that. Okay, um, right, so... One of the things, one of the little conclusions that I draw from this, this solidifies... Remember at the time when we were talking about that passage in the Quinta, I was talking about like where do the elves belong, right? And the implication at that part of the story that when the Valar take the elves to live with them in Valinor on the other side of the mountains, they're missing the boat, right? That, that this is not how it was supposed to go, this is not what the elves are supposed to be doing, and that seemed to be evidence that the Valar are kind of misdiagnosing things, right? Um... This conception seems to heavily underscore that. They're taking them literally out of the oxygen that they were designed to breathe, right? Out of the air that they were designed to breathe. But of course, you see the other thing that this helps to make sense of. This also helps to make sense of the difference between the undying lands and the non-undying lands, right? Um, and I think of a couple different things. Think of, Thing number one, the difference in the elves... Right uh, uh, in the Calaquendi, when the elves return, when the Noldor return from Valinor, they've been changed. Va- being in Valinor has somehow changed them. Well, we again, we seem to have a, a sort of a way to to latch on to that here. Right, um, they have been breathing the air of Valinor. They have been changed by the very atmosphere. Like the, literally, the air that you breathe in Valinor is different. Right, um, so it, it affects you. It changes you as it seems to have changed them. But, conversely, the air of Middle-earth is different. And this, uh, I guess, this was in the Book of Lost Tales, if I recall. It talked about the effect of the air of Middle-earth on the elves. Um, and how that's what l- makes them fade, eventually. The air of Middle-earth eventually makes them fade um, and diminish. And again... When, it, when he used the word air, when Tolkien used the word air in that context, I always read that metaphorically. You know, that like, okay, there's just like something, like a, some spiritual essence of something or other about Middle-earth, that, and he's using the word air metaphorically. And no, it's like the air, like the actual gaseous stuff around that you breathe that apparently has some effect, that, because it's impure, right, compared to the pure Ilmen over in Valinor. Um... So, well, Gwendolyn, it's not that Valinor is killing them, but it's changing them, right? Um, they can, ultimately, they go and they, they, they go and they live there, right? Uh, that's like when you return, you go, though, remember, they like to stay in Tolarasea, where you can get, like, the, the Ilmen, I guess, maybe that flows through, too, but the air, you're getting Middle-earth air there, too, you're right on the boundary, anyway. Um, 
So I don't think Valinor is harming them, but it's just, it's not what they were designed to breathe. And yet it, so it's not that the Valar are taking them to somewhere which is inimical to them, right? They're not, it's not like they're taking them to a, an environment in which they can't survive. Um, you know, like, uh, like buying saltwater fish and, and putting them in, in water that isn't balanced for them, right? It's not like that's what the Val, what the Valar have done. Um, it's, I mean, Ilmen is an upgrade from Vista. It's more pure. It's, it's, and the effect that it seems to, based on the evidence that we have, and the primary evidence that we have is, again, how those, uh, how those Kalakiria, how those elves who have been in Valinor are different when they come back to Middle-earth. That's a pretty big piece of evidence that, um, the effect that it has is a, a positive one. It's an upgrade, right? Combined with the fact that the air of Middle Earth makes you fade eventually, and you can see it's a it's a pretty big. Exactly, Ar- Arthur says no one comes out of Lorien unchanged. Exactly, exactly, just like that. Um, so it changes you. The 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 thing is, it just it seems like that's again that's not how the story of the elves was meant to go, right? Um, and the fact that they still want... Even though the air of Middle-earth is less pure, even though it is associated with fading, they still... They want that. They need that. It seems like Elven Home, right? The place which is the ultimate Elven Home is that place on the border, where they can breathe the outside air, but also be there in Valinor as well, that intermingling of Ilmen and Vista. Okay. Um... More, more. All right, a little bit more. And, and I love this diagram, by the way. This is the, I, this is one of the most gorgeous diagrams. I just, I just love this picture. Um, okay, Obel's network. Yet there is a chasm which sunders Valinor from Vaya, and it is filled with Ilmen. Okay, and by this way, one may come from Ilmen above the earth to the lower regions. Okay, so they, basically that just means you can see, like, right there. See that little gap? Right? The land doesn't quite touch the boundary of Vaya. You can get through. So if you're over here and you're, say, oh, I don't know, the moon, right? You can, you can, whoo, cruise through Ilmen, right? And then come down and then tuck yourself through that chasm and then go ba-bump, 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 ba-bump underneath the earth without going into Vaya, right? You don't have to go into Vaya. And then if you're the moon, you don't want to go into Vaya. So, so there's, there's, there's Ilmen access all the way around. So it is another concentric sort of sphere kind of thing. Um, okay, all right, sorry. Um, okay, uh, back to the chasm. There's a chasm which sends from Orion, blah, 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 mm-hmm, and to the earth roots and the caves and grottos that are at the foundations of the lands and seas. Uh, okay, there is Olmo's abiding place. Thence are derived the waters of Middle-earth. For these waters are compounded of Ilmen and Vaya and Ambar, which is earth. Since Ulmo blends Ilmen and Vaya and sends them straight, sends them up through the veins of the world to cleanse and refresh the seas and rivers, the lakes and the fountains of earth. And running water thus possesses the memory of the deeps and the heights and holds somewhat of the wisdom and music of Olmo, and of the light of the luminaries of heaven. Did you get that? Okay, okay, we'll go, let's go back. These lines represent the wells of Olmo, right? This is, these, these are the, the sort of the veins in the earth through which Olmo's influence comes. 
this is by the the means by which he transmits the waters up to the springs and rivers so uh uh Oh, yeah. Oh, hang on a second. Arthur's saying... Hang on a second. Aren't the roots of the earth gnawed by nameless things? Sauron knows them not, for they are older than he. Um, yeah, Arthur, that's true. Not these roots. No, no, no. There are roots of the earth, and then there are the roots of the earth, right? The roots of the earth that is gnawed by nameless things is probably no lower than like this, right? And people who live up here on the surface would call it the roots, but it ain't the roots, Right? The roots are way down here where Olmo lives. And Olmo sends the water up in through. But, but okay, did you follow where the water comes from? So, so water is compounded of Ilmen and Vaya and Embar. Okay, so the recipe to make water is Ilmen plus Vaya. So he takes some of the Vaya matter, whatever it is, and he takes some of the Ilmen, the purified Ilmen stuff, and he combines it with earth, with ambar, and that's what water is made of. And then that water gets sent up into the world, and that's, so apparently that's where the water cycle begins. Okay? Okay. Um, but in other words, this is conceived not primarily as, let's explain the water cycle, right? That does not seem to be Tolkien's interest here. What seems to be primarily Tolkien's interest is talking about how the earth is enriched, right? It's the latter sentences, and running water thus possesses the memory of the deeps and the heights, and holds somewhat of the wisdom and music of Olmo, and of the light of the luminaries of heaven. They are not merely reflected in the water. They are contained in the... The water itself possesses the memory of the extreme deeps, of the heights. Um, Why the heights? Vaya, right? The whole outer ocean is there, right? Ilmen, which, like that... So the the rarefied uh, atmosphere in which the sun and the, the moon and the stars travel up above the clouds... Water comes from there, too. Water has the memory of that, as well. So the whole dome of heaven. Okay. Um, so water... Water's awesome, yeah. As Kimber says, it has all the pure elements, including some that we don't encounter in everyday life. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are things we have access to more directly through water. So water contains the memory of all these things, but in a sense, we can touch... And here I'm being metaphorical... Um, we can... Okay, see, no, I, no, I was just about to, instead of saying we can touch these things, I was about to say we can come into contact with these things. <clears throat> That's just as metaphorical, just more clumsy. Anyway, um, we can touch the skies and the ether surrounding the entire world uh, and the, the fundamental nature of the earth itself. All of these fundamental sort of mysteries of the entire cosmos we live in we can touch those things more directly through water than anything else, right? Um, I mean, the Ilmen is up above us, and we see the sun traveling in it, <clears throat> but we can't access Vaya. We can't access Ilmen, right? 
but we can access water, and water has the memory of that. So we can see the significance of water, um, and and the significance of Olmo and the power of Olmo. I mean, Olmo, he's uh, he's got it going on here, right? Um, he is influencing his influence and his power is what is basically nourishing the entire world. Um, that's that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Um, ah. Okay. Um, now, we carry on with the story. Sort of, as it is. Um, and notice the ice pillars come back. <clears throat> now, it is said that the Valar coming into the world descended first upon Middle-earth at its center, save Melko, who descended in the furthest north. But the Valar took a portion of the land and made an island and hallowed it and set it in the western sea and abode upon it while they were busied in the exploration and first ordering of the world. So, remember this is a cross-section of the world, right? So the, the, the high central part of the world, which is called, therefore, the Middle Earth, right? Um, because it's between the two seas. That's why it's called the Middle Earth. Um, so they, they, they land here. Uh, Christopher Tolkien says he has no idea what the A is for at the middle of the diagram. Um, uh, but it's maybe the A is like there's a legend off the side for the Valar, like you are here when you land, because that's where they come down, right in the center here. And then they're like, oh, this looks great. So they take, they carve out a chunk of the high land here in the middle, in Middle Earth, and they build an island out here in the Western Sea. Okay, so this is where the Isle of Ilmarin uh, was. Okay, right? We're good with that? There it is. Okay, so let's go back. Sorry. I, I'm going to need to keep switching between the maps and the, uh, and the, and the prose here. Okay, so they set it in the Western Sea and abode upon it, and while they were busy... Okay, as it is told, they desired to make lamps... And Melko offered to devise a new substance of great strength and beauty to be their pillars. Melko's so helpful, right? Always happy to help. That's Melko's motto. And he set up these great pillars north and south of the earth's middle, yet nearer to it than the chasm. And the gods placed lamps upon them, and the earth had light for a while. But the pillars were made with deceit, being wrought of ice. And they melted, and the lamps fell in ruin, and their light was spilled. But the melting of the ice made two small inland seas north and south of the middle of the earth. And there was a northern land, and a middle land, and a southern land. Yeah, so this this is a reversion. If you're not familiar with this story of the deceitful pillars of ice, this is the old version of the story. This is the Book of Lost Tales version of the story. Um, and uh, you can get it in a little bit more detail in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, as Christopher points out, it had kind of seemed like we were abandoning the whole ice pillars thing in the sketch in the Quenta. There was no whiff of ice pillars there in his summaries. Um, but here it's back again in the Embarcanta. So we have the world changing now from its beautiful uh, symmetrical form. I mean, look how symmetrical and nice that is. And then it gets messed up in a couple ways. And the, the destruction of the lamps is the first one. So here, here we are. Destruction of the lamps. So here's our two inland seas. This is where Helkar uh, uh, and Ringel, the two lamps, were the two towers were and they melted and so they make the, they make these puddles. Uh, here is Valinor. So this is a notice we've changed our view, right? 
Uh, so this one is a cross-section. This is a side view. This one is a top view. So you can see you've got the you've got the, the the shape right. It's shaped like a football. It looks like a football from the top too, right? Pointy at the ends, right? Kind of uh, okay. And um, it was symmetrical too, but now it's got these big old puddles, right? Uh, that used to be ice pillars, uh, right in the middle. So that's kind of annoying and embarrassing. Um, where was Almerin, the island that they made, the hallowed island? They set the island in the Western Sea. Remember, it was over here, right? Where was Almerin? Yeah, huh? Western Sea. Western Sea, Eastern Sea. Tower puddles, right? Okay, so they were set up in the island, in the land in the middle. They melted into puddles. Now they've got the Western Sea, and you've got the Eastern Sea. So the Isle of Almerin was lost, but it was here, in the middle of the Western Sea. In other words, gosh, not too far from Valinor. So according to this, they didn't actually move all that far. Yes, of course, Yana, I mean an American football, as you know full well. Anyway, okay. Um... Uh, okay, all right. Uh, so, um, yeah, Mark Ingram is pointing out how notice how, he is pointing out how the formation of the land here is going back to the like just so story kind of myth that we got so much early on, like in the Tavildo versus Huan, and that's why dogs and cats are always fighting kind of story exactly like that. Uh, Mark, we can see that old kind of mythic thinking, that explanation of uh, that explanation of um, how things came to you, know, these mythic ex- explanations of how things came to be. Okay, but of course, this isn't the the symmetry has been has been marred, right? Uh, the 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 symmetry's gotten all screwed up because uh, why? Uh, it wasn't Melkor. Melkor made the puddles. Puddles were Melkor's fault, right? But then the Valar mess up everything else. For their further protection, the Valar thrust away Middle-earth at the center and crowded it eastward so that it was bended. And the Great Sea of the West is very wide in the middle and the the widest of all waters in the earth. The shape of the earth in the east was much like that in the west, save for the narrowing of the eastern sea and the thrusting of the land thither. See? So that central landmass gets mushed, right? Right in the middle. So it gets bent out, right? It used to be nice and symmetrical. We had these two symmetrical seas, but they're not symmetrical anymore, right? So the uh, in order to widen the sea, to make it a kind of a bigger moat to protect Valinor from the rest of the world, they shove it over. So that's why the whole thing bends, and we've got the... Now the, the Eastern Sea is all squishy and narrow and bendy, right? And the Western Sea is all fat. Well, you can tell I'm using... I'm sorry, I apologize for my use of such technical and scientific language. Um, but anyway... Um, so, okay, well, let's keep going. Uh-huh, thrusting the land thither. And beyond the Eastern Sea lies the Eastern Land, of which we know little, and call it the Land of the Sun. And it has mountains less great than those of Valinor, yet very great, which are the walls of the sun. 
Okay, so this is here. This is the land of the sun out here, and there's the walls of the sun. Um, but we have no idea what's over there. It's hot, though. Apparently. By reason of the falling of the land... Sorry, let's go back. By reason of the falling of the land... Here we are, down here. These mountains cannot be descried, save by high-flying birds across the seas which divide them from the shores of Middle-earth. So, you can't really see... Like, trust me on the mountains of the something. You can't see them. Can't see them from Middle-earth. Birds can. Like, if birds are flying over the sea of the east, they can see them. But you can't really see them, so don't look. Okay. And the thrusting aside of the land caused also mountains to appear in four ranges. Two in the north land, two in the south land, and those in the north were the blue mountains on the west side and the red mountains on the east side, and the south were the gray mountains and the yellow. Okay? But Melko, Melko fortified the north. There's we got the fortification of the north up here, Right? and built there the northern towers, which are also called the Iron Mountains. Right, here we go. And they look southward. And in the middle land, there were the mountains of the wind. That would be the mountains of the wind here in the midland, right? For a wind blew strongly there, coming from the east before the sun. So, okay, right, we got, we're calling the wind, because we're coming from the sun straight across towards Valinor, windy direction, apparently. Uh, and Hildorian, the land where men first awoke, lay between these mountains and the eastern sea. So there's Hildorian, where men first awoke, way out by the eastern shore. But Quivienen, where Orome found the elves, is to the north, beside the waters of Helkar. So here's Quivienen, where the elves came from. Okay, no problem. Um, uh, okay, good. Good. So... This is all really fun, right? Um, what do we notice about this? What things can we see happening here? We can see uh, um, the mountains. You know, many of these mountain ranges. These are the Blue Mountains, right? Which are going to, you know, you can see the origins. I'm not going to even say that this map is like a linear ancestor of the land that we see in the stories because it's it's not yet obviously so, right? Um, so trying to trace like the Grey Mountains and the Blue Mountains compared to, like, the maps of Middle-earth associated with the Lord of the Rings is pointless, because besides, there's some cataclysms that are going to happen first, right? Because first we just have the marring of the symmetry by the pushing of the Valar bending things and shoving things around and making mountains pop up. Um, then things get really ugly. We get the cataclysms. But the symmetry of the ancient earth was changed and broken in the first battle of the gods when Valinor went out against Utumno, which was Melko's stronghold, and Melko was chained. Okay, so it's not the War of Wrath, right? This is the first cataclysm. The first war of the gods um, at the chaining of Melko when the, uh, when the elves were awakening. Then the Sea of Helkar, which was the northern lamp, became an inland sea or great lake. But the Sea of Ringil, which was the southern lamp, became a great sea flowing northeastward and joining by straits both the western and eastern seas. Wait, what? Okay, this. Now this one is much rougher, but let's... Okay, hang on, let's review. So we're here, right? Ringil, Helkar, western sea, eastern sea. Then the Valar go to war. Here's a Tumna up here, 
right? And the Valar come over here and they're like, let's fight. So they fight with Melkor. Biff, bang, boom. Cataclysm, entire face of Earth utterly changed. Right? So here's Helkar, still in Inland Sea, still a puddle, right? And this is Ringil, which now joins the Western Sea to the Eastern Sea, right? By narrow straits on either side, right? So there we go. And so this is still the Eastern Sea and the Land of the Sun and over there, right? And here's still Valinor and stuff over here. And Christopher Tolkien gets really disturbed by these mountain ranges. And he's like, why are there mountain ranges like these mountain ranges? Symmetrical with these. That makes sense. What the heck are these? I have no idea. They look like mountains, but there shouldn't be mountains there. Uh, he thinks He clearly thinks his dad got a little mountain happy in drawing this second map, and he can't explain it. Um, okay, so... This is pretty remarkable, right? Notice how much more prose is used up. Talking about the cataclysm at the end of the First Age, right? With the War of Wrath when Beleriand is drowned and the face of the Earth is changed, right? Syria, you know, rivers changed their courses and Syrian was no more. We get that whole description, right? Whereas we get about half a sentence about the War of the Gods at the beginning, right? Um, and, but when you look at it, right? Uh, where's Beleriand on this map? Where's Beleriand? I know you're probably pointing to your screens at home. Um, if you look carefully, there it is. That's Beleriand, right up there. And there's Hithlum, and Angband, and several other features, but it's, see, like, there's the River Galleon with its seven tributaries, right? There's Osirian right there. Okay, so Doriath is, like, over here. Nargothrond is down there. You can just see that little dot is probably Gondolin and the Encircling Mountains. Okay, right? Really tiny. Um, so there there it is. There's the Helcaraxa up there, right? Um, so, yeah, as you can see, I, who was asking me about this? I think, uh, yeah, I, I, geographically, the Hel- Sea of Helcar and the Helcaraxa have nothing to do with each other. Um... Uh, but anyway, okay. So, in other words, that second cataclysm in which Beleriand sinks is like nothing compared to this first one, right? I mean, this first cataclysm, the first, the changing of the face of the world, when uh, the gods fight with, when they chain Melkor the first time, I mean, this was enormous. Look at this whole, look at this whole change, right? From this to this. Whoops. This. Yeah. Um, the sinking of Beleriand, you know, that, that bit going away, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's tiny. That's tiny. Um, yeah, uh, Christopher Tolkien also draws attention to how strikingly like Africa this business down here looks. Um, and remember, these stories took place like the Book of Lost Tales stories take place in the northwest of the old world, right up northwest of the old world. So, like, okay, Africa and Europe and, uh, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, vaguely-ish like that, mm-hmm. So Helcar's kind of like the Mediterranean-ish, maybe, something like that. 
Uh, Ringulus become like the Indian Ocean. Okay, yeah. Vaguely, I guess you don't want to push it um, too far with that, right? Um, now, Brian, you're right. The second sinking, like the second cataclysm, though it was more minor in a global sense. Well, global, <laughs> very much the wrong word to use. Um, in a a, 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 a a worldly sense, um, is uh, 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 anyways. It was obviously very, as you say, Brian, uh, mattered a whole lot to the elves. Certainly did, um, and uh, and of course, it's the culmination of our story. And we've been spending a lot by the end of the Silmarillion. We've been spending a lot of time, and by the end of the Quenta, we've been spending a lot of time in Beleriand and learning uh, about its people and its story. And so, seeing it all sink, we have a, a kind of an emotional attachment to it, uh, an imaginative attachment to it that we just don't have to the entire world uh, prior to that point. So, I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm, not, I'm just saying because of that discrepancy in the descriptions, um, I think without these maps, I would never have had a clear sense of exactly how big the changes to the world were understood to have had to to um uh, to have been in that first cataclysm. But uh, anyway, let's. Uh, oops, that's not what I need. Before we go, all right. Uh, and the earth was again broken in the second battle, when Melka was again overthrown, and it has changed ever in the wearing and passing of many ages. But the greatest change took place when the first design was destroyed and the earth was rounded and severed from Valinor. This befell in the days of the assault of the Numenorians upon the land of the gods, as is told in the histories. And since that time, the world has forgotten the things that were before, and the names and memory of the lands and waters of old has perished." Now we have the world made round. The Cataclysm of Numenor made by far the biggest change in the world of any other change that had been made. Um, this is when we can see, as, as Christopher Tolkien is saying, it was right around this time that the story of Numenor was finally beginning to come. Um, and we get the idea. Um, he makes a pretty good argument from the three diagrams here associated with, associated with the Ambar Kanta um, that this comes in, even though this bit was written was added later. Um, it, uh, it, it he makes a pretty good argument that it wasn't added much later. Um, that this is is really part of that is part of that whole story. All right. Well, that was fun. I hope you had as much fun with the Ambar Kanta, even though I don't understand uh, it all very well. But it's very interesting, and it does help to illuminate uh, uh, some things. Uh, and fascinating to see the way, the story of the world as he sort of envisioned it at this point. Next time, the Annals. We will read the first of the two Annals chapter and look at the uh, at Tolkien's attempting a completely different genre to talk about uh, the history of the Silmarillion. So... Uh, I look forward to talking about that with you next week. So read chapter six for next time, and uh, I will. Um, I will see you guys next week. Good night now.